This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 5.11 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sherrod. We are talking today with the producer and director of the documentary about 1MDB, Man on the Run. Uh, it was in the news because Najib Razak's defence team had asked for the movie to be taken down from Netflix. We are talking about it today because we had it planned, but also frankly because all these rumours about a pardon and what might happen to do with Najib Razak have been emerging. So anyway, let us know whether you've seen the movie, what you thought, of it, that number to call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, as promised, speaking with us is Cassius Michael Kim, the director of Man on the Run. Cassius, thanks for taking the time. Um, firstly, what initially drew you to the One MDB scandal as a subject for a documentary film? Did you feel that the interest around One MDB was still alive at the time of filming? You know, I think what attracted me most to the 1MDB story as the subject for a film is that it is such a massive story in scope and it spreads across so many aspects of society that I think are kind of venerated and looked upon uh, positively by society, uh, by those who don't know, such as Hollywood, Wall Street, international affairs. But like so many things, so many shiny things, when you lift up the hood, you can see the rot beneath. Um, Considering just how far the tentacles of this story reach and the amount of coverage it received, uh, both in the United States and internationally, uh, the awareness of the story was sorely lacking and even is now to this day. Uh, When I was putting my team together, proved itself to me because our production team is comprised of a lot of journalistic and production professionals who have impeccable credentials and a lot of experience. Uh, But most of them were not familiar with the story because for some reason it had just kind of slipped through the cracks despite all the elements we just discussed, all the things that had put it front and center in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, best-selling book, Uh, Despite all that, uh, people just don't know about this story. Uh, Combine that with the lack of accountability for so many people involved and directly responsible. It just felt like uh, an ideal topic for a documentary film. Now, before we get into the making of the film, uh, we do need to talk about the call made by the former Prime Minister, Dr. Sri Najib Razak, to have the film taken down from Netflix, saying it was subjudice and in contempt of court. What's your response to this? Um, I think the timing of it is very curious and convenient, considering all the things that are happening surrounding the former prime minister's case. I think censorship is the last refuge of the desperate. And I don't blame Najib Razak for being desperate at this point. Uh, That being said, I think in the film itself, you can see him as he sits down. He says, and I quote, you have the understanding in case it borders on subjudice or contempt of court. I've got to stop that because the trial is on. So he acknowledges himself what is going on. 
not only that, he was accompanied by a close advisor as well as an attorney. We spoke for nearly four hours. And during the interview, he would retire to a private conference room where he would huddle with his advisor, Luffy Azar, and his attorney, Farhan Shafi. And they would discuss what we had discussed on camera. And this process repeated itself multiple times during the interview. At no point during the four hours were any objections raised to the topics we covered. They had requested questions of me before the interview, uh, which I refused. Uh, I said that would be against my journalistic ethics to provide the questions in advance, but I would be willing to go over the topics I would like to discuss. And the prime minister was very cordial and he agreed to the parameters of the interview as well as the topics we would cover. And the way I had pitched this interview to the prime minister and his advisors was that this story couldn't be told without his perspective. Would he want that perspective told by himself or somebody else? Uh, also, there were so many developments that happened in the last couple of years, even during our post-production period. You know, for example, Najib Razak was sent to prison and Anwar Ibrahim became prime minister. So there just hadn't been enough distance to the events chronologically to have a real full telling of the case. Maybe not even now. There's still things happening, right? For the former prime minister to now say uh, these things and make these claims uh, I think it's just very convenient timing, and it's divorced from reality. So, but I understand why he's doing. Najib Razak was sent to prison, and Anwar Ibrahim became prime minister. So, there just hadn't been enough distance to the events chronologically to have a real full telling of the case. Maybe not even now. There's still things happening, right? For the former prime minister to now say uh, these things and make these claims, uh, I think it's just very convenient timing. And it's divorced from reality. So, but I understand why he's doing So how did you approach the process of uh, gathering information and evidence for the documentary, considering its complexity, as well as the ongoing investigations? Yeah, I mean, just you start reading one page at a time, right? I mean, there's so much written material to get caught up on. And our production team uh, was instrumental. Uh, we divided up kind of aspects of the story. Of course, I needed to have a, a broad overview of events and a familiarity with all aspects of the case. But, you know, our producer, Elise Shoreland, was kind of in charge of knowing the ins and outs of the Goldman Sachs angle. Our producer, Rana Natour, was in charge of uh, being familiar with the D.C. part of the story, the, the United Arab Emirates angle of the story. Uh, and then just kind of collectively knowing enough about the story and having a familiarity with the event so that you can talk about it uh, in shorthand with the people who did so much of the investigating. Uh, and for me personally, it was a lot of learning about Malaysia, uh, the history of Malaysia and the Malaysian political scene, which I personally was not familiar with. Um, so it's kind of a crash course in learning about those things to make sure that uh, I would be approaching the story with at least a baseline of knowledge for how to tell the story, right? And especially with the previously stated goal of wanting to make sure we're paying respect to the Malaysian people. Uh, you want to make sure you know what you're talking about. So you were in, so you interviewed various people of interest for the film, including Najib uh, himself, as you just said. Were there any challenges in accessing key individuals involved in the case or accessing specific information? 
I mean, for the most part, everyone was very uh, cordial and cooperative in terms of uh, being willing to work with us. And I think a lot of the people who lived through the 1MDB case were united by this shared sentiment that there hadn't yet been a film or series or any kind of documentary product that really encapsulated the story that as they thought it should be. Um, so, you know, people, especially in Malaysia, like Tommy Thomas and Tony Poir and Anwar Ibrahim and all these other people, they're more than willing to speak with us. Uh, it was a little bit more of a process to nail down the interview with the former PM, Najib Razak. He certainly did have some hesitation at first, but, you know, we spent many days embedded with his entourage as uh, they campaigned in Penang province. I rode with him to court for one of his 1MDB court dates uh, so that he and I could get to know each other and he could feel comfortable. But, I mean, for the most part, I mean, it was mostly just about building relationships with everybody so that they understand where you're coming from. All of this is based on trust. Uh, and it's just being transparent about what I'm trying to accomplish and letting these people know who I am as a person as well as a journalist so that they can feel confident in taking part in the project. So the documentary included interview clips with average Malaysians who seemed unaware of the details of the 1MDB scandal. Why did you want to highlight this aspect in the film? I think it's very important to speak to a a varied cross-section of people in Malaysia because like any country, any place around the world, um, it's hard to say that one person can represent everybody, right? And I think that's a futile assumption. So literally, we would spend, we would dedicate time every day that we were filming to just speak with anyone, really. And then, of course, there's a, a family in there who we actually went out of our way to book through our Malaysian production partners, because it, it, we didn't want it to be just people on the street. Obviously, that limits to you to the people you encounter in those environments. But, you know, also, we want to just talk to like a middle class family. Uh, we want to talk to someone who might be sympathetic to Barisan National. We want to talk to everybody, you know, so that we're representing a broad cross-section of the average Malaysian citizen. And also, you know, you run into issues in that process as well, because we're a largely foreign crew with a lot of big cameras walking around. Um, So not everyone's going to feel comfortable speaking to us. Uh, But, you know, I'm so grateful to our Malaysian production partners for having native speakers who can kind of impart our sentiment and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and I hope, you know, that the people who see the film can see that at least the effort was there to just try to capture a variety of voices and perspectives that represent the Malaysian population. So uh, tell us, how do you go about structuring the documentary to make it accessible and engaging for viewers who are not familiar with the details of the scandal? What is the aim here? Was it, uh, was it to make it digestible for the average person? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I compare it to an onion and you just peel the outer layers uh, one step at a time. Um, the first cut of the film was close to three and a half, four hours. And, you know, of course, um, if we had the benefit of something like a series, I think there are so many more rabbit holes we could have gone into. Um, but because we approached it from the beginning as a film, in my mind, at least, I set an arbitrary length that I wanted to hit. And then from there, you kind of just work backwards. 
there were various restructurings of the film. I remember having to rewrite the film in the edit room over a span of, I think, like 15 edit days, uh, going from New York to Philadelphia and visiting both my editors. That was not fun. Um, but, you know, there's just, I think the, the medium also, um, you want to make it more than just like a visual podcast, right? Because then you're not taking advantage of the art form being visual. Uh, at the same time, there are certain things you do have to import. There are obligations you have as a journalist to make sure the audience is aware of that can sometimes break up the narrative flow. Um, and maybe sometimes it's easier to get from point A to point B without taking these detours. Sometimes you can't do that. You have to explain what happened uh, when Mahathir vacated the office of the prime minister. Uh, you have to explain uh, certain bond structurings, bond deals, how Goldman Sachs got involved and what that penalty was. Um, so it's just kind of juggling all those things. Um, but for me, I thought a, a natural place to start was with the celebrities because it's almost like a bait and switch because that's like the glamorous part of it. And people are very intensely curious about that. But of course, there's just so much more to the story than that. But it's an easy way to make it accessible for someone who might not know more about what a sovereign wealth fund is or what Malaysian politics looks like. So there has been a fair amount of criticism um, actually about the caricatures of the various people involved in the case. Can you talk to us about what was behind the decision to use these visuals in the film? Yeah, well, you know, everyone's a critic. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's a couple of things. I think the dystopian nature of the portraits uh, were attractive to us. And that was a conscious decision to portray the people in that way. Um, the only people portrayed in that way are Jolo, the former prime minister, Tarek Obeid, Patrick Mahoney, as well as the celebrities who benefited from the largesse and Rosma, of course. Uh, and also, you know, I do want to add that some of these portraits actually are not AI because certain people, such like Tim Leisner or Patrick Mahoney and Tarek Obeid, have spent a lot of money wiping themselves off the internet. So there actually isn't photographs that you can license of these people. They don't exist. So the AI also can't make portraits without data. So an actual human artist created those portraits, but it's a visual representation of kind of the sentiment that we, the filmmakers had towards these people. Uh, also, you know, <laughs> there's a limited amount of money you can spend on a film. And we spent a lot of money on art. Um, for example, the miniature sets that we built, the Marquee Nightclub, Jolo Super Yacht, the 1MDB Conference Room, and the Middle Eastern Throne Room, uh, those were built by Academy Award-winning set designer Ian Hunter, who won an Oscar for his work on Interstellar and First Man. As a filmmaker, as the executive producer, you have to make judgments on where you're going to spend the art budget. Honestly, I think the conversation around artificial intelligence has changed a lot since we finished the film because the decision to make these portraits came in mid 2022 so at that time for us it's a new technology and i still feel that way you know like you have to learn how to live and coexist and make technology work for you i think a lot of that has been that dialogue has been co-opted by the online discourse and the conversation around labor and of course myself and everyone who worked in the film are very much pro-labor but um, it's certainly not any attempt to 
circumvent artists and artistry. But of course, you know, if you spend, say, $60,000 on a, creating these miniature sets and filming them, there's not a lot of money left over for portraits. And yeah, those are the decisions we made. So Cassius, what do you hope viewers take away from the documentary? That's not really for me to say. Um, I just hope that they get a better understanding of what happened. Uh, I think there's a tendency with financial crimes for people to gloss over the victims, uh, for people to not understand the process and the chain reaction of the theft and who suffers for it. And that was definitely one of our goals is to make that through line more apparent um, to show that there were actual consequences of this, you know, not just the people who investigated the crimes who were at great risk, uh, who were often threatened with arrest and lawsuits and marginalization and oppression, but also the Malaysian people were now left with this massive debt burden uh, that prevents them as a society from perhaps getting to where they want to go. And I think that's the true great injustice here. This betrayal, really, of the Malaysian people by Joe Lowe, as well as the former prime minister. Let's not let these people off the hook. Accountability and justice are within reach, but it takes people of great will to see that through. And the Malaysian people, I think, are nearly there. And I've been very impressed by the developments the last couple of years. Uh, but I can only hope um, that this just helps spread awareness of what happened. Cassius, thank you so much for speaking with us. That was Cassius Michael Kim, producer and director of Man on the Run, which is a documentary about 1MDB. It's been up on Netflix actually for a little bit, but it recently got back in the headlines because um, Najib Razak's legal team asked for it to be taken down. Let us know. Have you seen the movie? What did you think? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Bold, fearless Malaysia. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 5.38 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sherrod. We started off our show today by talking about Man on the Run, which is a documentary up on Netflix still, uh, despite the fact that there were requests for it to be taken down. It is about 1MDB. It actually kind of focuses on Jolo, uh, as the title would suggest. But it does feature interviews with a number of people, including current Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim, and former Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Najib Razak. And so we were asking you whether you've seen the film, what did you think? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. So... Um, as Mill says, I also only watched it after Najib's team asked for it to be taken down. Um, but this was the first time that I heard the linkage with the deputy public prosecutor's murder being made. Yeah, Asmil, there were a lot of, I think, fascinating things in it. But uh, you, like me, you know, prompted by this news hook, I mean, the story that it was going to be taken down. I had, uh, Alina, I don't know if you read A Billion Dollar Whale, because that was the one thing I invested. Though, you know, as, as journalists, we, we, we all, in fact, as Malaysians, we all live through the one NDB uh, story. The details and the complex, complex financial arrangements and machinations is something that I struggle with even today, right? So uh, there are many books out there on 1MDB. I struggle with most of them. A Billion Dollar Whale was easy. It was easy to digest. And I think this is also part of the 
uh, the, 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 the imperative with documentary making? How do you tell a story simply, even though it's a complex one? Well, that and also how can you keep people, the various, the various people who will be watching it, all coming at it with varying levels of uh, interest, varying levels of knowledge. How do you keep people hooked? Because, for example, you have Norzy who says, I only watched the first 20 minutes of the program and I stopped because I felt my blood pressure going up. So garam, I don't need the additional stress. Life is stressful enough as it is. Norzy, absolute sympathy with you because I had, there were parts of it I did, in fact, fast forward on because I felt like I really did know these bits and I didn't have to go back to them. But because I think we as Malaysians and we know the consequences for ourselves, it's something that uh, Cassius mentioned uh, just now, the consequences are so huge for the Malaysian public for, you know, in terms of debt uh, that we carry. It's kind of invisible. That's a problem, right? It's invisible. It, it is. But the other thing is, uh, and we asked Cassius about this as well, because there were people who did not who snippets right little little clips of Malaysians asked about one MDB asked about Najib even or Jolo or, or any of the specifics who basically said I think it has something to do with investment I'm not sure and I I think that was there partly to I mean we heard from the director but that was there also partly to reflect on how perhaps life moves on not everybody is clued in or you know so tightly kind of watching the news all the time. And I'm interested, Noisy, because it sounds, from what you're saying, which, by the way, I understand how you feel. It is very anger-making. Um, but it sounds like you you quit maybe partly because you already knew it. I wonder how it is for people who either feel like, oh, I can't keep watching this, or conversely might feel like, um, oh, I didn't know this, I'm learning something. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a mix, right? Because there's also, it's been a couple of years, I think, from the height of 1MDB. So there are many young people and young people who get to vote who might not know the details of 1MDB, right? Who And that's why I think when uh, Najib was able to resurrect himself as boss coup, I think a lot of people were shocked, not just in this country, but globally, that so quickly he could redeem uh, you know, his reputation and recast himself as some sort of working class hero. Remember jumping onto those little motorbikes and stuff. So uh, is our memory short? Yeah, I think famously it's been said, you know, the public memory is very short. And so these documentaries do remind us over and over again, which is I think why they need to be suppressed by at least some people, uh, because they remind people of the real uh, seriousness of the crime that was committed. Uh, we have a voice note that's come in from Roberto. Yes, I have watched Man on the Run and because I'm in education line and following exactly what Sherat said about short social memory, I ask my students to watch it as part of the class activities and come up with a reflection if they knew who was YOLO and all the people implicated in the 1MDB scandal. And uh, yeah, literally, they are so young, even though they are in the university, that they didn't know who was YOLO. So yeah, it was a good experience, I guess. For me, I watched it once it was released. And uh, I think it's a fair, accurate uh, relatory of events. I think it's, it was interesting for the young generation to watch it as well. 
Thanks, Roberto. Um, you know, I, I'm struck actually, Sharad, you and I spoke about this when we did a uh, look back at Reformasi, I think it was last year, I want to say. Um, and I was reflecting on how actually at the time I was too young to know what was happening. And it's only been later on with the many books written about it that I've come to fully kind of get the, fo- the whole picture of it and not just the headlines and what was on in the evening news, which again, I did not understand as a basically a child. And reflecting on that, I really do see the value of having an easy to digest documentary about it on a widely accessible platform. Yeah, for those who want to watch it, right, there's no compulsion in watching anything anywhere on any of these platforms. But I think um, Cassis did a, a good job. Uh, I I do wonder, though, if and when Jolo is apprehended, uh, whether the story will then continue, because we'll get much more. This is a story, as they say, that keeps on giving. <laughs> it does. I did not expect to be talking about it today. And yet here we, here we are. are. So there it is. Uh, keep those thoughts coming. You can call us, you can send us a voice note or WhatsApp, and of course, tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.